Welcome to Digital Hospitality. I am your host, Sean Walchef. This is a Cali BBQ Media production. Every single week, we talk about digital hospitality. Every business needs to be digital. Every business needs to be in the hospitality business. And we also teach how to create a brand, how to do digital storytelling with your smartphone. A barbecue restaurant shouldn't be a media company, yet we are, yet we get to have incredible conversations every single week. And we're grateful for anybody that has been listening to this podcast for the last three years. We've really come a long way and had a variety of different guests. And one of the biggest things for us is is giving you a seat at the table, a seat at the table with totally inspiring people that have done incredible things in their life that hopefully you can implement in your own life um, to make you better, to make your business better to make the people around you better. Uh, this week's guest is David Adamovich, the great Throdini. David, welcome to Digital Hospitality. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Sean. So, David, I am so excited to talk to somebody as fascinating as you are. Um, Because of the world of digital hospitality, I'm fortunate to get asked to go on other podcasts. And Sean Murphy, he has a podcast called Above the Bar. Um, We had a great conversation. I was a guest on his show. And by the end of the show, we were basically friends. Um, You know, Sean and I have become friends just over one podcast conversation. But he told me, you know, based off of our conversation, who I was, you know, my background of my grandfather being being an immigrant from Bulgaria that had worked so hard in his life to get out of the village, um, provide an opportunity for myself. Um, And he said, you know, there's this incredible man that I just recently interviewed, and he's called Throdini, the great Throdini. And I think he would be a phenomenal guest on your show. And uh, sure enough, I went to Google and looked you up. And next thing I know, I see all of these incredible things that you've been doing in your in your second career. Um, and I, I don't even know if it's your second career. Maybe it's your third, fourth. We'll, we'll get into that. But nonetheless, you've been on Shark Tank, America's Got Talent, David Letterman, Conan O'Brien. You hold 40 world records, um, Guinness Book of World Records. You you have this incredible plethora of experience and you've built a brand for yourself and you've received uh, Magician's Highest highest Award, which is the Merlin Award. Um and you never went to school thinking that you would be the world's fastest knife thrower. <laughs> oh, not at all. <laughs> so, Dave, please explain to the listener. I think bring us to you own an operator. You're managing a billiards studio, a billiards. Tape. I, I had uh, in the past. I had two pool rooms. Okay, two, I, two I pool rooms. I have many long. Yes, I did in the past, but not now. Okay, so in the past, and a customer walks in to the bar, correct? Bring, bring us, bring us oh, to this. Okay. Bring it, bring us, bring us to the to this aha, oh shit moment in your life. Okay, so we're referring to when I realized I could throw a knife. Is <laughs> correct. That, that's where we're going. Right? <laughs> that's where okay. we're going. By the way, is this is this just audio, or is it both audio and video? Audio and video. So they get the they get the whole. Uh, I don't know if you're going to throw any knives from your kitchen because that'd be pretty cool on YouTube. Oh, okay. No, that's fine. Just uh, <laughs> wanted to make sure. So if my hair gets messy, I could clean it up because I know people are looking. All right. So what happened was, uh, here, let me give you the. If I break into the opening line that I used to do on stage, and that that sums up a lot and then can break into answering your question. I'd go on stage and I'd say, you know, the the announcer would say, 
the great Throdini and his assistant target girl in. And we'd walk out on stage, take hands, take a bow. And I'd say, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My real name is the Reverend Dr. David Adamovich, retired professor with a doctorate in exercise physiology, paramedic, pool hall owner, professionally trained chef, ordained minister. And in my spare time, my friends call me Throw. <laughs> I'll tell you why. <laughs> and that's short for Throdini. So, okay, that's like a big, very broad picture of me. Uh, what... So let's get into your question about the knife throwing. I had been a professor for some 20 years. I left that and went to emergency medicine management with a friend who was a, an MD that happened to be in my graduate electrocardiography course when I was teaching. And he was taking a master's in exercise physiology at the time. We became friends. I subsequently left the university and went. And in, went into his practice with him as an administrator. He was selling the practice. I found myself out of a job. And I did the most logical thing a 50-year-old ex-professor could do with a doctorate and a wall full of degrees and multiple books that I wrote. And that was to open a pool hall. <laughs> and, you know, based on childhood love, I always liked shooting pool. And within a very short time of opening the hall, like, like weeks, one of my customers came in with a, a small 12-inch throwing knife, took it out of his back pocket and said, I look what my son-in-law gave me for uh, the holidays. And he said, you know, I don't even know what it is. I said, I, what, what the hell is that thing? It's just, you know, it looks like a knife, but you can't cut with it. It's, it's just a throwing knife. So... We both step outside the pool hall. Remember, I was 50 at the time. Never saw a throwing knife before, never touched one. And we both threw it at a tree. I stuck it, he didn't. And I said, Joe, I could do that. And then from that moment on, I just knew and felt I had the skill and the talent and certainly the passion for it. Nine months later, I was a world champion. Um, you know, competing against people that were throwing all their lives. And the, at, that, at that first competition that I went into, it was out in Vegas, uh, Circus Circus Hotel, I think, out in the parking lot or something. And the guy running the tournament said to the other people, I don't know who this guy is. We've never seen him before. But I'll tell you this, keep an eye on him. He's the smoothest knife thrower I've ever seen. And that's because what he was really referring to is my style is so relaxed and it's so comfortable that I don't look like I'm putting any effort into the throw. I simply take the knife, I peel it off my hand, I bring it back and I throw it. It's very smooth and very easy. Whereas some of the others stand there, they hold the knife up, they aim with the knife like they have a pistol in their hand, then they bring it back, they pause, and then they slam it in. And it's a whole bunch of work. And for me, it's just, no, you look at a spot and you have a knife in your hand, you take it off your hand and you throw it. Done, real simple. So that became, you know, what I ultimately call the Throdini peel and throw method. And so, so bring it back in. I, I had 
totally fell in love with throwing it. I was 50 years old. My first competition was nine months later. I was in competition for a total of five years. Won the world championship, won the national. And then there was a... Uh, a magazine, Time Out New York, had did an article about me as some local guy who throws knives. And this performer, Chris McDaniel, who is a Wild West trick roping, bow whip performer, singer, saw the article and gave me a call and he said, hey, I live out on, you know, out in Montauk Point here on Long Island. If you're ever out my way, I'd love to meet you. Maybe show me how to throw some knives so I can add it to my act. And I said, ah, what the heck? I, I, you know, I'll take a ride out there. I'll see you. It's a two-hour ride. And I show him how to throw a knife. He wants to add it to his act. And he said to me, did you ever consider performing? And I go, no, I'm just, you know, I'm a bullseye buster. I do competition. <laughs> so he said, listen, you're not going to get anywhere doing that. Let me show you a tape of some old time knife throwers from the 50s, 60s, 70s that are the, you know, the classic performers of the day. Paul Lacrosse, Chichi Whitecloud, etc. Larry Sazeski. So I look at the tape. A week later, I sent him back a video of me doing everything they were doing but I did it around the dummy. You know, those were performers that, that, yeah. that threw knives around a human target. Sure. Maybe I didn't say that, but they weren't uh, bullseye busters. They were performers. So he said, and you can do everything they did as good. Let's put together an act for you. He helped me put together the act. And that was um, some 19 years ago. And ever since then, I've, I, you know, so I was 50 then. I competed until I was 55. And now I just turned 74. And I've been, for those 19 years, literally performing all the time. That's absolutely incredible. I think that's a, that's a, that's a lot packed into a short question. No, no I, 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 appreciate, I appreciate that. And I think it's, you know, it's very valuable for our listeners. We have people that listen from all different parts of the earth and we're very fortunate that, you know, no matter what business they're in, if they have a passion for something or if they have an idea for something, it always takes a guide somebody along the way that comes into your life, either serendipitously or you're not sure why they're there. And that idea comes into your head and then you can't get it out of your head. And it sounds like that kind of happened to you at your, at your own pool hall. Right. At the pool. Hall, and then when I, when Chris McDaniel stumbled yeah. into my life, so they yeah. each changed completely changed the direction of my life. One from just, you know, ex professor running a pool hall uh, to being a knife thrower, a competition knife thrower. And then from being a competition knife thrower to being a performer. And then along the way, I started getting into the world records, which that's another part of this story. Sure. But I want to bring something up that I think your viewers should really be aware of. And I firmly believe this. You may have a certain talent and you may be world class in that talent and you don't even know it. And it doesn't really matter in the long run how much you practice, practice makes perfect but if you're not near perfect it doesn't matter <laughs> okay what i'm what i'm saying is i could teach 
I can have a hundred people in this room and I could teach them all how to throw a knife. Yeah. But there might be one or two who just pick up the knife and throw it like it was in their hand all their life. And that's, that's kind of what happened to me. All right. Yeah. And I, and the other 98, some are never going to get it and some will get it, but they're going to work like every day throwing hundreds of knives just to get a little bit better. Whereas those handful of people, just a couple who are literally going to throw like they were born throwing knives like me. I didn't start till I was 50, but believe me in a very, very short period of time, I was as good as the people who have been throwing a long time. And the point of all of this is if you have a natural talent and you find that talent, definitely pursue it. And by natural talent, I'm referring to, you look at people like uh, Tiger Woods in golf and uh, this Serena Williams and her sister. These are people who at the youngest of age, it was discovered through their parents that they had a particular talent. And at that age, when they were little, little kids, they were cleaning the clock of people who were either playing golf or tennis their whole life. Yeah. And a quick aside to that, when I had the pool hall, I, you know, I had guys in there 70 years old, 80 years old who were playing pool all their life who still have trouble running a rack of balls. Yeah. Yet a teenage kid walks in, picks up a cue, never played before, and a week later can run a rack of balls. So it's not the time that you're in it. It's the skill, the natural inherent skill that you have that determines how good you're going to be. Sure. Then once you get up to that, you know, when you get up to the point where you're hundreds of a second apart from somebody else, okay, maybe all the practice and practice then could make you a little better than the other guy. Well, I'd love for you to talk, talk about the people around you when you decided to make this career jump, because that's often a story that's not told. It's easy to see all the incredible accomplishments that you have and all the media, all the awards that you've won, all the records that you've broken, the, this brand that you've built. But I'm sure along the way, how many people that are close to you, that love you and people not close to you laughed at you and said, what are you crazy? You're going to go be a knife thrower. Like, are you crazy, David? What's, what's going on here? The great throw. Yeah, well, what, what are you serious? And he's lost his mind. <laughs> I hear that all the time. <laughs> I still hear it. <laughs> you know, you know, when I hear it the most, when the couple times that I've forayed into the, the zone of doing something no one has done before. That's when I hear it. So like I'm doing stunts like all the other knife throwers. Then I get an idea of doing something that, you know, hasn't been done in 30, 40, 50 years. And I'm going to bring it back or I'm going to develop a new stunt that no one has done. And they look at me and say, nah, that's, you know, you just can't do that. It's, we don't know how that was done or what you're attempting to do is really too hard. And there's just no such thing as too hard. That's, yeah. you know, you try, you try, no matter how hard it is, you try. And either it's going to start to work or it's not going to work at all. But, you know, that's, that's when I hear from people about, you know, what are you crazy? Why do you want to do that? It's so difficult. Well, I'll tell you after I try it, then I'll tell you how hard it is until then you're not going to talk me out of it. 
did your family support you when you made this career shift? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that wasn't a problem because, um, you know, being in the pool room, I had all the time in the world. Was, you know, people are not there. I used to bring a target round in with me and set it up in the corner. And if the pool room was slow or there was nobody there, I'd be in the corner throwing knives into the to the wood. So, well, it's it's, just, it's actually it's it's funny to think, but you wouldn't think that throwing knives in a pool hall where I'm guessing alcohol was served was sound like a good idea, but there's actually businesses now I know here in San Diego called battle Axe, where they literally built a, a, a business around throwing axes, live yeah. axes with alcohol. <laughs> That's all over the country. We, you know, my girlfriend and I looked into it and we wanted to do it with a local restaurant here. And, um, their attorney said, no, what are you crazy? You're not bringing that stuff in here with axes. So we said, okay, we'll set it up across the street in your parking lot. And your customers can walk over and throw axes and then go back and get another drink or whatever. We won't be really on your premise. We'll be across the street. And they said, no. And then we looked into the insurance and it was like, it was absurd. So I, I give the people who are doing it a lot of credit for dealing with the obstacles and the cost of the insurance and everything else. And the fact that they even continue to do this where alcohol is even close by because agree more. you almost, you know, you can almost imagine what's going to happen the first time something really bad goes down. I haven't heard of anything bad going down, but it's the same thing in everybody's mind. Axes and alcohol in the same place. Okay. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about as you began your performing career, when you started getting some notoriety and getting media reaching out, did you have an agent at the time or did you do everything yourself? I've never had an agent. So you've always, you've always booked everything yourself. Yes. Can um, you talk, talk a little bit about gaining, gaining media publicity in when you're creating your brand and the opportunities that came along the way, kind of the, I guess the first big, big media opportunity that you had. The, I think it came about when we did uh, an off-Broadway show called Maximum Risk World Champions on the Edge. My, uh, my assistant, Ekaterina Skarna, was a, a world champion Russian rhythmic gymnast. My friend Chris McDaniel was a world champion trick roper and myself a world champion knife thrower. And we put a show together with the three of us. Um, her as my assistant, Chris doing his singing and trick roping and bull whipping. And then uh, she would also assist him while he was singing in some comedy kind of stuff. And then we had a one guest performer come into the show besides what we did. And we promised to break a world record at the end of, or to attempt a world record at the completion of each show. So we were doing that in an off-Broadway theater in Manhattan. And within, by the second show, we were literally on every TV station, every radio station, and every newspaper in New York City. They all wanted a piece of this action to come <laughs> down and see live knife throwing and bullwhip trick rope on stage in New York City. And then right at that time was when 
there was some kind of strike of the stagehands or something, uh, New York City TV, and they were reaching out to get whoever they can on on the, on, on the show. And I, I wound up being either, was it on Colin O'Brien or David Letterman? I was on both. I don't remember yep. if it was right around the same time. But so I did a little piece on one and I was a guest on the Conan O'Brien show. So that, you know, that brings a high profile when you get that kind of media attention uh, being in a show like that. And then when I started doing the world records, that was also getting me a good amount of attention. Now, did you ever feel the imposter syndrome at any point during your career? Because as you progress and go on to bigger stages and as somebody that once you go from Conan O'Brien and David Letterman, and then you go on Shark Tank, I mean, you've done all these incredible things. At a certain point, did you ever question yourself? Am I going to be able to pull this off when I, when you, or were, were you just, are you in performance mode when you hit the stage? No, I never had that problem at all. As you know, the imposter situation, um, you know, there's a side of me that to this day, before I go on stage to do a show or before, you know, we're doing a TV thing or a movie thing or whatever that in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm saying, what the hell are you doing? What are you doing? You you can go from hero to zero in a second with one bad knife. Mm-hmm. An entire career from being two days old or to being 20 years old can go to hell with one bad throw. And so, you know, I sit there. I recognize that. It crosses my mind. Then the moment we step out on stage... All that goes away, and I go into my performing mode and my skill mode, and I don't think about all that other stuff. And when you when you start to get these media opportunities, let's let's talk about Shark Tank in particular. Was that an actual business plan to build a funhouse in Times Square with your business? Yes, partner? it was. Yes, Todd Robbins is very very well known in the sideshow community, and I. I perform with him at Monday Night Magic and at Coney Island. And he had this idea about a fun house. And somehow I had approached him about doing a similar thing. So we were comparing notes on what we thought about how this could be done. And then for some reason, uh, we saw a pitch that said, submit a business idea to Shark Tank. So we sat down and we sat in front of our little camera there and did a little pitch and sent it in. And then we were contacted by them and said, come on the show. And we did. We were shot down by uh, the woman on the, on the panel. Mm-hmm. The, the real estate Barbara, woman. Barbara Corcoran. Yes. She, she actually had taken her children to the show that we perform in at Monday Night Magic. She oh, was wow. familiar, not necessarily with us, but of the concept that we were bringing to a, a larger, very large venue in Times Square. And uh, in that show, the uh, one of the guys on the, on the panel, this few called the names, was one, I put him up at the board. Kevin O'Leary? No. Damon... Damon, the, black, uh, the black guy. Um, yeah. 
Damon, uh, Damon John. Damon, okay. So before we went off stage, he said, I'm going to go up there. I'm going to volunteer. And I threw some around him. (laughs) And and to this day, I still shudder at how close I got to his left shoulder by accident. And I I was throwing a set of knives up the left side of his shoulder, uh, past his left shoulder. And one knife just came so damn close that when it left my hand, I knew I had a problem. Yeah. You, you, when you do, when you throw something, you very often know the outcome long before the end result. Yeah. The moment it leaves your hand, you know, if you did the right thing with that throw. And I saw that knife like slow motion going through the air saying, going to hit him it's going to hit him oh, no and then, boom it, it went like must have been a quarter of an inch from his shoulder yeah and uh, todd you know i looked at todd he looked at me and we both knew like wow that was close <laughs> so that was you know that was my little shark tank experience you guys you didn't get the deal but did you get any other opportunities because of the exposure N- no um we, we continued to get harassed from Shark Tank for a long time after <laughs> because, uh, you know, in the agreement that you sign uh, somewhere in there is that if if this deal comes to fruition, independent of them, somehow they feel that they still deserve a piece of the business. Oh, really? So if you didn't sign with them, but somebody else saw you on the show and then someone else buys the concept, it was because you were on their show. Oh, really? So I'm pretty sure of that because I remember for a long time getting calls and letters and things from them asking me what we were up to, if that idea was sold, blah, blah, blah. You know, did we open the facility? And I know it wasn't just because they were trying to be nice. Yeah, they were they were trying to follow up on whether or not they had any money coming to them. Well, it'd be hard to open up a fun house in Times Square and, not, and them not find out about it. <laughs> it was very hard. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Can you? So when we first started the podcast, I asked you to tell me your story and you told me your story that you tell audiences when you go on stage. I think that's very powerful for our listeners, for them to understand what a what we call a hook point, uh, a way to engage the audience, to let them know who you are and what you do to bring them in. When did you learn how to do that? And what advice do you have to anybody that's, because it's well, not just performing on stage. Now, now when somebody gives a presentation to Zoom, you, you still want to be engaging with your audience. That whole, the idea of that introduction was not mine. It was Chris McDaniels. Okay. And he said, um, and oddly enough, we, he and I, and the management at Monday Night Magic had a, uh, a little disagreement over whether or not I should use that opening. Um, I understand both sides. Chris's point of view is what you were saying that I need this hook when I walk out on stage to engage them to me as a person right away to like me and to be engaged in what I'm about to do. So with that introduction, Chris was saying, wow, these people are going to see you have a great background. You're an intelligent guy. You've got, you know, some good degrees. You've done some wonderful things. And now you're throwing knives. You're going to be pretty good at that too. And the management 
felt they didn't want me to say that because they wanted the audience to feel that every performer on that stage was a full-time professional magician. Mm -hmm. So how could I be all these things and not be a full-time performing magician? Yeah. So it was a little, you know, between what the management felt and what we felt as belonged to part of the act. Uh, So we eventually dropped it to make them happy, but I've used it outside of that situation still with great success with the, you know, people feeling that they're not just seeing another Western stage show. And, and that, I don't mean that in a negative way, but um, like all, all the other knife acts are either were in the past from a Western point of view, cowboy and Indian type thing, or they're um, straight up circus or one thing or another. And I used to go out there on a tail. I still do from my first day I performed till today. I still wear a tail tuxedo with a red bow tie and a red cummerbund and black and white spectator shoes. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty glitzy outfit. Why, why, why? I just, I felt the tuxedo, the sophisticated look suited me better than going out there looking like a Wild West performer, as did all the knife throwers in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. They were all Wild West in appearance. So I felt comfortable as, a, you know, the professor in evening wear, <laughs> going out and, and showing his skill and talking to the audience. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I took it to the point where in between each of my stunts, I talked to the audience. I say a few words about maybe what we just did and what I'm about to do. So they're, they are part of the act as I'm doing it. They're, they're engaged. They're not simply looking at me like they're watching a movie screen, but they are, to me, I'm bringing them into the act and we're bringing the act to them at the same time. I think that's a, a theme that runs throughout so many different great performers. And that's not just great magicians, but people like Howard Stern that have built this incredible career because they bring people into the production side. They actually talk to the audience like you're part of the team, that this this magic is going to happen. We're going to lay it down, but ultimately I'm going to let you know what's happening before and what's happening after. And that it, it's what you said. It, it it gains endearment. It personalizes you. It makes you want to root more for who you are as a person. And I think that is compelling. And it's interesting to hear the difference between management and then you know you and your business partner and your of, of what you're deciding the story to tell, the brand that you're trying to tell to the world. Right. And 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 what I did in my discussion in in this introduction of what the next stunt is going to be uh, within that is built in a few words about my assistant. And at one point they say, and with me this evening is the lovely, daring and talented Lynn. And she comes up and she takes her own applause. And then I say, well, now she's, you know, worked so hard up to now, I'm going to give her a place to rest her head. And she <laughs> throws three knives at the board. She rests her head on her neck on that. And then I throw a very tight profile of knives over the front of her body, right up over her neck. And so it's like, here I am introducing her, giving her own applause, showing the audience how much I appreciate her. 
and I put her to the board and I throw a really tight, dangerous profile right over her throat. And then she steps out and gets twice the applaud that she was getting before then. And I, you know, for almost, almost, uh, almost every stunt, I reach in, I take her by the hand and we come out, we take an applause together. Whereas many of the acts before, it was all about the knife thrower. It had very little to do with the assistant. So I flip that whole concept around and I make the act about the both of us. And I show that I respect her, she respects me. And we, we're building up tension through the whole act because each stunt is getting more and more difficult. And I see that they very rarely watch me. They're always watching my assistant at the board. Yeah. The only time I get attention, it seems, is when I stop to talk to them between stunts. But when the act is going on, it's all about her at that board. And I think that's great. I think she deserves all the attention. I I love that the audience, uh, maybe the right word, sympathizes or empathizes with her and... I've often said at the at the end of a show, and you know, we're meeting the audience afterwards. Sometimes we wait at the end of the aisle when they walk out. They very often want to make eye contact with me, but they'll look at her and say, "How do you let him do that to you?" <laughs> Which means they clearly have been thinking about this, you know, about this girl and why yes. she's there, letting me throw knives well, around. You've humanized her. She's she's not a dummy up on the stage. She's not Absolutely. a stage prop. Absolutely. And uh, that, I think, is just great. And I, I, I have often said, if at the end of the show, every woman in the audience wants to be her and every man wants to be me, we really did a good job. Oh, that's a great that's a great way to look at it. So for a lot of people, they would see getting on Conan, getting on David Letterman, getting on Shark Tank, getting on America's Got like there's so many different things where. I've done it. I made it. But one of the things that makes you unique is longevity and longevity is something that I respect so much, whether it's a musician, whether it's a athlete, what do they do in their second career? What's their next act? But it takes something special. There's something within someone that drives them that it's never enough. What drives you? Oh boy. What drives me? I, I never have enough uh, in, in that sense. It's whatever I do, I do, I think, the best I can and try to be the best I can and get the most out of it. Uh, you know, I did that when I taught. I had to write a book about what I was doing, you know, what I was teaching. So they used my textbook instead of somebody else's. Um, you know, when I was in the pool hall, I... I I was obsessed with having a really nice pool hall. I owned two of them at the time. And, you know, we vacuumed every day. We cleaned the tables. We gave the best equipment. We tried to make it a really good experience for people to come there. As a knife thrower, I, you know, I want to do an act different than everybody else. We all, let's say there's three or four or five of us in the world who are up at the level where we are who do the kind of stunts that that we do that are in a certain elite category of throwers. And as much as we're all skilled, the three or four of us are entirely different people who approach the stunts entirely differently and have a different reaction from the audience. 
you know, I'm I'm the professorial type. I explain my stunts. The other guys are circusy, uh, theater type. So so we we all just do the same thing, but we do it differently. And I'm glad to say we all respect each other. Up at the, up at that level, we all have a mutual respect for each other. People, you know, so many times say to me, "Oh, you're the best. You're the greatest knife thrower in the world." And I say, "Well, thank you for that compliment, but I'm among the best." There's another two or three or four guys up there that I have as much respect for as I believe they have respect for me. And not any one of us is the best. Maybe we may be each best at a particular thing that we do. But overall, collectively, we all have our talents and we all share being up at that, you know, that level. I think that's very powerful. It's something we talk about a lot, which is a rising tide lifts all ships. We own a barbecue restaurant. We've never tried to be the best barbecue restaurant, but we've always wanted to be in the conversation with the best because nobody does the same barbecue as we do. And if we're in that conversation, that's something that's powerful for us and we can have a collective voice. And I think that often gets lost in kind of the world that we live in. It's always the best or the worst. It's a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And when you're talking about a craft, something that you do, something that you care deeply about, um, you're really giving a gift. You're giving a gift to audience. You're giving awareness to so many people and you're, you're entertaining them in ways that they never thought they would be entertained. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah. I, I agree with you hundred percent. Um, so I, I'd love for you to tell me just a little bit about your, your parents and kind of anything that they instilled in you and that kind of, that maybe you haven't thought about, but that's kind of why you do what you do. I mean, it's, I, I'm a, I'm a father now. I have a, a three-year-old son and a one-year-old daughter. And I start to think back at the things my grandfather I was never met my father. I was raised by my grandfather. And I start to think back at the things he told me when I was young that, you know, I always would go oh, grandpa that, you know, you, 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 you don't, you don't eat because you're hungry. You eat for, you know, to make your brain better. You know, he was a medical doctor. And those are the things that now I'm thinking about as I'm teaching my children how to eat or why they work. And um, I'd love for, for you to tell me a little bit about your, your parents and, and what they instilled in you. Um, both of them always had the best in mind for my identical twin brother and I. <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's two of us out there. Does he throw knives? No, he doesn't. <laughs> uh, he lives out in uh, Arizona and I'm still here in New York where, where I was born. Um, and th- my mother is still with us. She actually lives with me. And uh, my father died when he was in his fifties. Some, uh, quite a while ago, 70, in like 75, 85, 95, 2005, 2015. So he died about 40 years ago. Um, and, and you know, they just always wanted the best for us. I've always had the support from my mother. Um, whatever I do, she's never said, why are you doing that? Or, you know, you shouldn't do that. But she's very supportive. And... What else? I have two daughters. Uh, One's like, I think, 44 and the other's 40 right now. And they're both very successful, smart kids. Um, One's a lawyer, one's a a plastic surgeon. And, you know, so I I have a good family of people that like what I do. I like what they do. We all get along. Um, I should hope they're as proud of me as I am of them. I think they are. 
What do you What do you want your legacy to be? Oh boy, I have to relate that to a story I just had with Chris McDaniel. I I had developed after some. 30 something years or 40 years that a particular stunt was not done. I brought it back and I became the fourth person to do the veiled wheel of death, meaning the thing that's spinning, but paper in front of it. The girl is hiding behind the paper and I was the fourth one. And for several years, the only one doing it. And then I went ahead and took it another step further and did it with two girls behind the paper. And that was so cool that Ripley's picked it up and featured it in their hundredth uh, anniversary book. I'm definitely the only one ever to do that. But now I just found out someone else is doing the veiled wheel. <laughs> so he's the fifth one in history to do it. And I, I mentioned to Chris, I said, well, you know, this guy, he copied what I did and he, he would have definitely not done it had I not brought it back. There's no doubt that because of what I was able to figure out how to do it. And then he saw what I did. He was able to copy it. And I, I kind of felt a little. I don't I don't want to say insulted, but I just I never heard from him. I never had him contact me and say, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by what you did. Thank you. I'm doing it now, too. And I said to Chris, you know, that kind of bothered me a little bit. And Chris's answer was very simple. He said, you know what? It really doesn't matter. He said, you've done so much. You are in the record books for like, you know, 44 world records already. The, the accomplishments that you've done in knife throwing for a guy that started at the age of 50 not born into it in the circus. He said, when the books on knife throwing are written, you'll always have chapter one. <laughs> and, you know, he said that you just, there's no way that anyone can talk about knife throwing in the future when I'm long gone and not have a major discussion about me and what I've accomplished in this field. And that, I feel, is like one of the nicest things that my legacy could be, that, you know, I will be recognized for those accomplishments and a lot of the firsts that I've done. Is there anything that you have wanted to tell Chris that you haven't told him? I mean, I know one of the difficult things for me as a man is there's so many people that have helped me, mentors, friends um, that have been there in the darkest hours and been there in the greatest hours. Um, but sometimes we don't tell them how much they are appreciated. Is there something that I, I tell him all the time? You tell Whenever him. any major accomplishment, accomplishment of mine comes about any great TV show and I get a lot of good, you know, TV time. I'll, I'll put a post up and somewhere I'll say, thanks, Chris, this is the monster you've created. So, you know, and I, I just always give him credit for the impact he's had uh, on my life and my career. So what's the next chapter? I, I noticed that you're on social media. You have an incredible digital profile. Um, you know, you, you haven't ignored the Internet, which is kudos to you. And there's so much content out there on knife throwing. Credit to you. Um, all these gifts that you've given to the next generation. What's what's next? 
oh, I'm working on a stunt that I want to do, but I can't talk about because I'm afraid that if I say it, someone's going to try and do it before me. <laughs> Perfect. When, when, are, when, are, when are you going to be doing it? Give us a... Uh, if I don't break my ass doing it, I don't know. Well, because I have to wait for the weather to get better. I would be rehearsing it outdoors. Okay. I'll put it that way. Um, but right now with COVID, you know, I haven't performed since it's probably 10 months now. Mm-hmm. I did one show in 10 months and a TV show the other day. I, there's a show called Got Talents that's being filmed out in California now. And I was out there a month ago to to be in that show. That should air in the spring. Okay. I'm only concerned now because of the current shutdown that they may have halted production of the show, which maybe would affect the outcome of them being able to put the show on the air with only a couple in the can. They don't have a whole season. So I'm hoping all that gets over with and I continue shooting them and the show actually airs in the spring, whatever that means. Um, but, you know, I, I feel I can go on stage tomorrow and be as good as I was 10 months ago. To me, my knife throwing and my performing is uh, like riding a bike from when you were a kid. You just you never forget it. Yeah. Um, the, the worst that can happen is I forget my lines. That's it. <laughs> I, I, no, that's the absolute truth. And <laughs> I, I have in my knife box, I have a little list of the stunts. Yeah. So, you know, in between each one, when I go to grab the knives, I read the list to know which one to do next. Because I'm sometimes a little bit absent-minded, the absent-minded professor, if you will. And I'll go, and I'll go, what am I supposed to do next? You know, she's up at the board waiting for one stunt, and I'm grabbing knives for a different one. So I I read my list, and I go down it one by time, you know, one at a time, and and then I step out and do the right thing. So... Uh, hopefully I can, you know, remember my lines and remember the order of the stunts. And then I throwing is just natural for me. It's not a problem. Do you have a custom custom knives that you use or is there a particular brand? Is that a yeah, magi- actually, uh, Western, yeah, Western stage props in uh, Las Vegas had uh, duplicated uh, the knife that I use. And they produce a line called a Throdini professional thrower. How, how did, when did the name Throdini come? My, my final question, how did the name Throdini, where did it come well, from? Well, it's obviously a knockoff of Houdini. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to say that. And uh, it was right when I first started the transition from competition throwing to stage throwing. I was thinking I needed a stage name. And I think, you know, Throdini sounds a lot cooler than David Adamovich on stage. So we went with that, you know, the great Frodini and Frodini, and that became me. Well, David Adamovich, you are a true gift. Um, the the gift that is digital hospitality. I wouldn't have been able to have this conversation if it wasn't for podcasts. Um, the fact that you can spend you know forty five minutes with me, and my listeners, to tell them the story of your life, hopefully inspire them. One of the greatest gifts my grandfather gave me is that you always have to be learning. And at somebody at fifty to launch another career and to accomplish the things that you've and you're you're in my eyes after having talked to you, I feel like you're just getting started <laughs> which is the greatest. absolutely I, i'm not ready to give up at all i you know if i can walk out on stage i'm doing it i'm performing that's phenomenal uh, 
you know, maybe just get the prescription fixed a little bit and I'll be fine. Well, what's the best, what's the best way for our fans um, to follow you on your website, email, YouTube? Uh, there's YouTube videos, you know, slash Throdini, YouTube Throdini. Yep. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. Is, yeah, knifethrower.com. And um, there's a lot of links on that website. That's great. Well, um, we're going to put all that in the show notes. And like I said, we can't wait to see the the stages that you continue to go on. You're a true gift. And um, we can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you very much, Sean. It's been a pleasure being on Digital Hospitality. There it is. The great Throdini. Dini.